0: Welcome to the discussion, Coronavirus, the Need for a Vaccine Credential, sponsored by MITRE. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller.
1: Welcome to the discussion. My guests today are Tim Pedos, the Vice President and General Manager of Government at IBM, J.P. Pollock, the Founder and Chief Architect of the Commons Project, and Dr. J. Schnitzer, the Vice President and Chief Technology Officer and Chief Medical Officer at MITRE. Gentlemen, welcome to the discussion. Thanks for having us. Let me set just a little context for our conversation today. At a recent Defense Department-sponsored conference, attendees had to prove they'd been vaccinated. Maybe they pulled out a piece of cardboard from the CDC they received after getting vaccinated. Maybe they showed a photo of that card on their phone. The conference was among the first signs that there's some sense of normalcy coming back after more than a year of the pandemic. With more than 160 million Americans having received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, the broader question now must be asked, What steps do we as a society need to take to return to those pre-COVID times of concerts and movies, sporting events, and and all those things that we enjoyed as part of a mass gathering, and we don't have to worry about a massive outbreak? One of those ideas is the use of vaccine credentials as a key to opening up society. The idea would be to create a privacy preserving health status verification app that would be as easy as online banking. They must be digital first, but not digital only, to ensure all citizens have the wherewithal to take advantage of the vaccine credential. Technology companies and federal, state, and local governments must address common fears and concerns, real or perceived, about the vaccine credential, including those around privacy and security of medical data. And that's where my guests will come in today. Once again, I'm joined by Tim Pados, the Vice President and General Manager of Government at IBM, J.B. Pollock, the Founder and Chief Architect of the Commons Project, and Dr. J. Schnitzer, the vice president and chief technology officer and chief medical officer at MITRE. Let me start with the basics. What is the vaccine credential? Discuss this concept, how it would work. Let me start with Tim, because IBM has been obviously part of the leading edge on this.
2: Well, thanks, Jason. First off, thanks uh, for having me on. It's uh, great to be here today. Honored to be joining this, uh, this interview with my two distinguished colleagues, Jay and JP. We all sort of work in the same space and are focused on the same objective, which is how do we return to some sense of normalcy, get the economy open and, and, uh, and move forward? When you talk about the digital health card, I think it's important to talk about what it's not first. You hear a lot out there about, you know, vaccine passports and that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's not that, okay? All the digital health pass is, is an electronic equivalent of this, your CDC card. Now this is great. And this is what I can use to verify my, um, my vaccination, but there are some issues with it. One is it's paper doesn't fit in my wallet, which means I'm going to stick it in my jeans, which means being the klutz that I am, this is going to go through the wash sometime in the next uh, the next couple of weeks. Um, I When I got vaccinated, I asked UConn Medical Center here in Connecticut, what do I do if I lose my card? They didn't know. They said, call the state. Where do I call the state? Okay. So getting that replaced is going to be a challenge. Um, the second thing is that this can be, you know, Anyone good with PowerPoint can cook this up, uh, you know counterfeit this within about 20 minutes, so all a digital health passes is, is an electronic version of your paper card. For instance, New York is using the New York Excelsior pass, my daughter happens to go to school in New York, uh, New York City and I have another daughter in Utica, so here's, here's that pass. Um, there's no personal identifiable information on it, other than the name and the date of birth. Um, it does not uh, call back home when I go to verify it. It exists at the edge on my on my uh, phone, and then someone can use that to verify. To verify, so it's voluntary. You don't have to use it. You can use the paper pass, or you can print off your your uh, digital health credential off of your phone or your laptop. It's secure. It's private. It secures privacy, and it's also interoperable. And really, what it is is about trust. You could say that in the last year or so, many residents have lost a little bit of trust or faith in their societal institutions in general and government and in particular. And just because the government says, okay, it's great, Tim, you can go out and get on a cruise, for instance, doesn't mean I'm gonna be super eager to get on that ship unless I know that A, they're sanitizing and doing social distancing and B, that they're taking reasonable precautions that the folks that are gonna be joining me on that boat have either been tested or they've been immunized. And that's what the, that's really about convenience and giving me a sense of level of trust and comfort that it's okay for me to leave my house and rejoin the economy.
1: Tim, you bring up some interesting points because, and I think that's it's a key thing to repeat, not about PII, very simple. You you own it on the edge of your phone. It's not in some central database that the government's going to collect. I think those are some of the fears, as I've been doing research around this, that has come up. How to ensure that this is not just going to be some massive database. And, And I think people are uneasy about that concept. And I think that's why A lot of times this idea of vaccine credentials, vaccine passports, whatever we're going to call them, has gotten maybe a little bit of a bad rap. Is is that the message that you all have been trying to kind of get out of kind of what this is and what this isn't?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, the good news is that there are capabilities, technical capabilities that exist today that actually have come of age today um, that allow us to do things we weren't able to do three to four years ago. So if this pandemic had hit say in 2015, and we wanted to create the equivalent of a digital health credential, what would we have done? We would have gone out and built some intergalactic centralized database that had everyone's information in it. It would take us three years to build, probably wouldn't work that well anyway. um, And it would be such a target for cyber attacks, right? What this allows us to do using things like um, blockchain, Uh, QR codes and encryption is to leave that information distributed and just create the ability to interoperate where we are not creating that central database and we're not carrying PII on our phone and we don't have to call home every time you do a verification. So this is very important in Europe, for instance, where they're really concerned about privacy. When you scan at the edge your credential and someone verifies it, that verification happens at the edge. It does not call home to the database centralized, the authorized issuer to say, has Tim actually been been immunized or tested? Because what that would do would leave a breadcrumb for the government to see that I got on this train or this airplane or went to this sporting venue. And that makes people really, really nervous. It's just a electronic equivalent of your paper card. Someone can look at it and say that's correct, or they can zap it with a QR reader and say it's authentic without any call home, without any sharing of information.
3: Jason, this is Jay I'd like to add a couple of things to that I agree with everything that Tim has just said to be sure. But there are a couple of added features that we want to make sure we talk about and think about this and one of them is equitable access to these kinds of credentials so although it's very nice to have this kind of thing on a smartphone and that's a great platform for it and one that we will use as well. We also wanna make sure that people who don't have access to that kind of technology or can't afford it or don't have the broadband connection needed to download the material the first time still can benefit by these kinds of opportunities and credentials and so there needs to be a platform that has capability even to use paper if necessary but still make sure that it can't be counterfeited because tim's absolutely right not only can you create one on powerpoint you can download blank cards like the cdc has issued from your favorite vendor on the internet including ebay and fill out anything you want on it and so can anybody else by the way so not only can you falsify it but somebody can create a false one for you too which is equally bad Uh, so we want to make sure Absolutely agree with the components about trust, but we also want everybody to have access to this kind of credential, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of whether they're rural or urban, regardless of whether they have a smartphone or not. Everybody should be able to use it if they choose. And again, completely agree with Tim. It's voluntary. It's the individual's choice. They choose whether or not they want to do it. They don't have to. Thank you.
4: And uh, one additional point I can add on, this is JP, is uh, on this note of of equitable access uh, and voluntary use of these platforms, we're still in a phase of the pandemic and the vaccine rollout, uh, where not everyone who wants to be vaccinated has in fact yet had the chance to do so. Uh, There are people who aren't going to be able to be vaccinated uh, and those people are relying on on testing to get access to many of the same services that we're hoping that vaccine credentials can, can begin to unlock. And so it's important that platforms also uh, respect people's uh, ability to prove their COVID immunity status or COVID uh, current uh, test result status. So, many of the the sort of health pass systems that are out in the market are actually sort of going beyond just simply being a vaccine credential or being just a test pass, uh, and are and are encompassing both of those things. Uh, that provides some benefits in terms of choice and equity, but it also preserves some benefits in terms of privacy. Uh, there are aspects of my immunization status that I might not necessarily want to share, at least in these times, for example, uh, being very early uh, in receiving first and second doses of the vaccines here in the US might convey certain things about my employment or my health status that I might not want to share with someone. And so passes that uh, take efforts to pr- to preserve that level of privacy and just say, yes, in fact, JP is in fact cleared for this particular uh, activity uh, can, can uh, go a long way as well.
1: A lot of these efforts are, are just in the beginning stages. I read earlier that in some ways, there's 20 different efforts that are ongoing uh, across uh, the, the nation in some way to create some sort of credential or, or, or such. So let's break down like what, what needs to go into an effort like this? Where does, what role maybe does the federal government play as well? Can we, can we talk through that a little bit and then we can maybe get into the technology side? I don't know who's, uh, I'll just open it up to the panel.
2: Oh, sure. I'll I'll take a shot at it. Um, So this is Tim again. And what you're really getting at is the key point of interoperability and the ability to share information um, across a complex ecosystem, right? Um, There will not be one health credential capability out there, right? Um, I was just on with some folks over in Europe and they have the green pass, but within each country, each country is kind of developing its own capability. The federal government here in the United States has taken a hands-off approach on whether you know a state will develop a health credential or, or not. And you know, same thing is happening in Europe. So there's gonna be different, call it credentialing applications, uh, but all these systems need to be able to talk to each other. So when you think about it from an architectural point of view, um, you need to think about the application sitting on top and then the interoperability layer at the bottom, which basically sets the standard for a few things. Uh, when you think about how this works, it's, there's the issuer, there's the resident, and then there's the verifier. And so the resident downloads a wallet of some kind, and then he requ- requests a credential. So for instance, the state of New York is the authorized issuer of a credential in New York. So I get my wallet, I asked New York, may I have a credential? I put in some minimal information. They asked me some challenge questions. We verified who you are, here's your credential, okay? So we need a standard for what constitutes an authorized issuer that's recognized on the network. So now I have a credential, then there's the verifier. And the verifier can be a sporting venue or a restaurant, an airline or a cruise line. Who is authorized to be a verifier on the system? How do they recognize the state of New York is an authorized issuer. So for instance, tourist season is coming up in Europe and we're talking to Hawaii, for instance. Hawaii, great example, they want to open up their island for tourism. It's a huge part of their economy. So they're encouraging travel to the the state of Hawaii starting on July 1st. They want to know when someone comes in with a credential from say the state of New York, how do they know that the state of New York is an authorized issuer? Or how do they know that France is an authorized issuer? Okay, so the standards, uh, the interoperability needs to occur at that information layer. What is the standard for um, for an authorized issuer? What constitutes an authorized issuer that I can recognize them? What constitutes an authentic credential? So there's a minimum capabilities in there and how do I verify it? That's where the interoperability needs to occur.
4: This is JP, happy to chime in on this one as well. So yeah, the the VCI effort uh, that all of us uh, here are, are part of uh, has really been aimed at driving that technical interoperability layer portion of things. And so the notion has been that since our federal government was not going to be taking a position of building a registry and a single you know, government mandated credential, uh, that this was something that the healthcare and health IT community uh, needed to come together and solve uh, on relatively short order. Uh, and so that's what we did sort of starting very end of last year, uh, began to gather uh, a crowd of folks, including EMR platform vendors, uh, some key health systems, uh, technology providers, uh, nonprofits and conveners like ourselves and MITRE and, and such, uh, as well as uh, uh, folks from CDC, from, you know, ERA, the, the group of uh, state registries, Uh, and and lots of other folks along those lines. And the idea was, could we figure out a way to leverage the existing healthcare infrastructure, uh, the standards that have been in place for years and are recently mandated by the federal government to help people get access to their medical records uh, from systems and, and providers who have access to those records, a technology called Smart on Fire. And could we marry that with sort of the newest and best technologies for helping us gain access to all of those decentralized features that Tim was talking about earlier, so that these things can live on our phones, they can be completely portable and yet still trustworthy, uh, no matter how we end up conveying them to to verifiers on the other side of things. And so for that, we leveraged the new W3C verifiable credential format and essentially sandwich those two things together So the underlying uh, data payload comes from health IT infrastructure, so that hospital systems and pharmacies are really easily able to produce these data in a format that we can all share. And then we're able to package that up in a way that that makes it trustworthy. And so sort of that approach by coming together with the health IT system uh, and leveraging best in class existing standards. I think gets us a long way to that uh, technical interoperability that, that Tim was describing. And with that, you know, we can have some benefits uh, along the lines of you know, pharmacies or uh, EMR vendor platforms. They're able to simply issue these credentials to anyone who would like to access them. And all of the various personal health records apps or health wallets should be able to bring these in and use them uniformly regardless of where they came from. Uh, Apps like IBM has built for New York, uh, the Excelsior Pass, we don't want to go and redo all the work that IBM has done in New York to get New Yorkers access to our records. But this is something that Excelsior Pass could simply output as a means for me to gain access and import into, you know, other states' wallets, into, you know, my United app,
3: whatever the case may be. So, this is Jay. I just want to pile on to what JP just said and, and make a couple of additional points. Uh, everything that's been said is exactly spot on. But first of all, I want to call out the importance of the private sector in all of this. You mentioned, Jason, at the outset that the US federal government has decided to play a, a little bit of a hands off role for the time being and probably indefinitely uh, on this. And that's fine. Uh, the private sector has stepped up. And that's been great. we've seen that all along with this uh, pandemic, with uh, the uh, C-19 Healthcare Coalition and so forth, where the private sector has really stepped up for over a year now to uh, try to make things happen. But in addition to that, uh, think about this vaccine credential as another piece of your health information. And we already have throughout the industry ways of protecting everybody's health information. Just as JP described, with the standards that already exist and the frameworks and the rules around that, that make all that information protected. So these credentials are basically an application of pre existing standards and capabilities that existed beforehand with respect to health information. And this is another example because your immunization status, whether or not you've been vaccinated, whether you just had a negative test, or any other piece that is necessary. To help with these decisions as to whether or not you can go in and attend that concert or not, are basically pieces of health data that we know how to protect.
1: And what's most exciting about all of this to me is we finally found a good use for QR codes. For years, I was wondering what, what are these good for, and now we figured it out: ordering at restaurants and and potentially a vaccine credential. Let's take a quick break, and when, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. You're listening to the panel discussion. Coronavirus, The Need for a Vaccine Credential, sponsored by MITRE on Federal News Network.
0: The world is full of challenges. And at MITRE, we're ready to take them head on. We're working on some of the world's most difficult problems. We're here to create a safer world. We are a world-class team of innovators, thought leaders, visionaries, and doers. We know we are called to do more, do better, think differently, and move faster. And at MITRE, we're meeting those challenges every day. We're solving problems for a safer world. Discover MITRE.org.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, Coronavirus, the Need for a Vaccine Credential, sponsored by MITRE on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today, Tim Pados, the Vice President and General Manager of Government at IPM, J.P. Pollock, the Founder and Chief Architect of the Commons Project, and Dr. J. Schnitzer, the Vice President and Chief technology officer and chief medical officer at MITRE. Joe, before break, I made the maybe bad joke about QR codes. We finally found a reason for that. We were talking about the technology that goes into the vaccine credential. But one thing that, that actually, Jay, you brought up earlier that I think is really important to make sure we hit upon is not everyone's going to have a, 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 a smartphone. Not everyone will have great access to broadband. Not everyone wants to use their phone this way. So there has to be a way for people who... Maybe just want to stick with paper to use it. And and that paper has got to be secure because we also talked about the challenge of potentially somebody making fraud documents. So walk me through these equity challenges and and how how this approach that we're talking about today can, can address them.
3: Thanks, Jason. You're exactly right. Equity is really important for this initiative. And we want to make sure that everyone, everyone in the US who wishes to can access this capability. They don't have to, but if they want it and they need it, they will have access regardless of their technological prowess regardless of whether they have a smartphone or some other fancy device or not regardless of whether they're located in an urban or rural location regardless of their socioeconomic status and regardless of their broadband capability they must have equal and equitable access to this technology across the board that's one of the requirements for exactly the kinds of things that we're doing, and that's being built in and baked into these applications. And
4: this is J.P. I'd like to pick up on on what Jay said and and explain a little bit of what we're doing and what we're seeing VCI members doing uh, to to uh, to get at that. Uh, so you know, first the ways in which uh, we're asking technology platform vendors and health systems to distribute. Uh, these vaccination credentials is, you know, first you can certainly download them to your mobile application, and that mobile application can can show the QR code, right? So we've we've discussed that. I feel like that's what's in most people's minds when we talk about uh, when we talk about vaccine credentials and health passes. Uh, but the other critical requirement is that they're provided with a PDF or printable paper uh, with that QR, that exact same QR code on it uh, that can be scanned and verified at, at locations of choice. And so what we're seeing is EMR providers and pharmacies who are participating uh, are building tools for their uh, providers who are using their systems to be able to uh, access the same kinds of credentials and print those out in the doctor's office or at the pharmacy uh, for folks. So that even if you don't have a printer at home, uh, can log in you know, and print that out for yourself, uh, you should be able to hopefully be able to get these at, at various places where you receive care. It's not infeasible that we could see a day when people can walk into the nearest pharmacy show identification, uh, that pharmacist would be able to look them up in a state registry, pull those records, and be able to print out a document for a person right there. That's a little bit future, but it's not that far-fetched given where all of this is going and how far we've come with uh, getting these standards to coalesce and and people to contribute so far.
1: And in fact, real quick, JP, we'll just going building on your idea, through uh, Bluetooth and other types of uh, near-field readers, you could probably get that send that document from your phone to a printer at a pharmacy, just as easily as you described it. uh, As long as you, you know, could show two forms of ID, right? Your, your, the credential on your, uh, um, your credential, not maybe not on your phone because you don't have it, but, but the ability to show your ID and something else. And then you could just go from there with a printer. I realize as I'm describing the near field and Bluetooth, you have to have it on your phone to do that. But my point is there are ways today that you can go down that path.
4: Yeah, I, I think that we'll see a, a lot of cases where healthcare providers who already have your information, uh, where you already have a relationship and they know who you are, uh, they're going to be able to get access for these records for you, whether you are vaccinated there or not, uh, and be able to provide you with these printouts uh, on site, which is going to be critically important for the equity issues that Jay has been describing.
2: Sure, and as Tim, I can add, I agree with absolutely everything that uh, that Jay and uh, JP just laid out um, to embellish on a couple of points. There's, there's, when we talk about equity, there's also this concept of accessibility, right? So even for someone who has a laptop uh, or has a mobile phone, how easy is it for them to download the pass? So, you know, I'm I'm in my mid 50s, and my parents are elderly, and you know, you know, can my dad? my mom get on the, you know, their iPhone and download it as well. So that's very important from a citizen user experience to make sure that it's infinitely acceptable, accessible and easy to use. Uh, then there's the concept of equity and inclusion from a geographic point of view, right? So um, you know, working with some of the, the, um, the, um, the Appalachian states, for instance, that don't necessarily have great, um, you know, Wi-Fi or, or cell phone coverage um, in some of the rural areas, even in even in upstate New York, there's are some areas where there there isn't great uh, great cell phone coverage. So ensuring that you have it local on your phone, or to JP's point, that you can print it out. And then the third piece is absolutely, um, you know, the administrator of your shot uh, can be, you know, they will can have access to the system as well, and and sitting side by side with you, access the credential and print it out so that you can carry it around. So. Um, the technology is infinitely capable. It's coming up with the policy and the governance of of who can actually, you know, print out the uh, print out the
1: past. Tim, I think you bring up an important point here: the policy and the governance side, and, and that you know ensures that people uh, obviously understand that it has to be transparent, and people have to understand how the process works. And okay, who's going to have my data? Oh, I will only have my data, or. Someone who I approve to have my data, like my doctor or my healthcare provider, is that how is this the 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 vaccine credential project? How the the work that you all are doing addressing those big challenges?
2: Well, you know, the good news is there's companies like MITRE and and folks like Jay, who uh, you know it, you know are 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 really helping us drive uh, some of the processes and the interoperability standards, etc. You know, the uh, the VCI initiative uh, helps out a great deal with that. A great deal of that as well, um, and then you know each of the state governments that we are working with and and over in Europe have um, you know policy teams um, to kind of meld the you know uh, you know to address some of these issues, and, and then the key piece is ensuring that whatever policy and this is where IBM spends a lot of our time, whatever policies are set. That we can actually bake that into the technology because that that sets the guardrails and the rules state by state and authorized issuer by authorized issuer of what you need to embed in into the actual interoperability later in the application and ensure that whatever rules that, that state sets, that it satisfies the verifier. So if I go from New York to Hawaii, ensuring that Hawaii will recognize that, yep, new york's rules about how they're issuing this credential are thumbs up from us we will accept that as an authorized credential
3: and jason uh tim makes exactly the right points but people still worry many people still worry about how do i keep control of this and is somebody else watching over all this and controlling it for me or is somebody telling me this is what I have to do and I don't have freedom of choice. And so our response is, this is all about freedom of choice. Each individual gets to decide whether they want to use the credential or not, and whether or not they want to participate in the activities, which going forward are going to require it. But this is healthcare information basically, and it gets protected and treated just like every other bit of your healthcare information, just as Tim described. And that, Guarantees that it will be secure, safe, preserve the privacy, preserve the confidential nature of it, and be under each individual's control as to who they care, who they want to share it with or not, and whether or not they want to share it. And that's not up to anybody else except the individual. And it's completely the individual's choice. They can decide, each of us can decide whether or not we want to do this. And if we don't want to do it, we don't have to.
1: I think that's a, a key piece that you said, Jay, because a lot of people believe this will be some sort of government mandate, and that and the government, I think, as you said earlier on, you know, purposefully maybe uh, decided not to get involved in that scene. That it's it's very much a third rail, a slippery slope, whatever analogy you want to use. So, so the benefits of using something like this, and it goes down the privacy a little bit too, is, is privacy is being built in. There's an understanding that the security is being built in because of that freedom of choice, because you want people to be comfortable to, to voluntarily use a vaccine credential to then potentially gain access to, again, sporting events, concerts and the like.
3: Yes, that's exactly right. And, uh, and the decision about whether or not to require this kind of credential will be made at the level of the organization that's organizing the activity so whether it's a part of the travel agent travel industry a cruise ship or cruise line or the airplane industry or international travel or whether it's entertainment of one sort or another the or colleges and universities which by the way are already requiring and the numbers growing day over day requiring that uh, students, faculty and staff returning to to campus in the fall must have evidence of uh, complete vaccination. These organizations are making those decisions. That's where the decisions need, need to be made, not by the government, not by us, but by those organizations. But if somebody chooses then to use one of those opportunities to go back to college, to take a cruise, whatever it is, that's your choice you can choose not to of course but if you choose to you will need a credential we're trying to make sure that the credential you have access to is safe secure maintains your privacy and meets all these other requirements that we've talked just talked about and is available to all
2: yeah this is tim and i would um, i would just add to that or you know said another way it is a good thing in my point of view. and I would assume that Jason and JP agree that the government is not mandating this. A matter of fact, we don't want them to. We want this to be voluntary. We want the resident or the recipient of the credential to decide whether they want to participate or not. And we want them to decide what data they wanna to show to which person at what time, right? So this puts the power of, of having the credential in, in the hands of having that information in the hands of the the resident. If you compare a digital credential to the CDC card, which we've talked a little bit about, there's actually more personal information on the CDC card than I would necessarily care to share, right? (laughs) On on a digital credential, um, all you have is your name, a QR code, and a check mark. That is all the verifier needs to know. On that check mark, they don't even need to know, to JP's point that he made earlier, they don't need to know whether I was vaccinated or not, or if it is a testing um, that i just been tested within the last 72 hours. All they see is the check mark, that is it.
1: Tim, let me put a finer point on this because we've talked about this several times. The QR code will, it, it will be used to demonstrate that this is authentic, that this is verifiable. And mm-hmm. the way the QR code does that is maybe, can you just take us to the next level down?
2: Well sure. So so the information, again, going back to how the system works, there's the issuer. I'm the resident. I download my wallet, I ask for a credential. The issuer asks me some challenge questions that only I'm going to know the answer for. New York has gone with three, which is what what vaccine or test did you get? What date did you get it on? And what city did you get it in? Right. And based on that information, you could ask additional questions. Different states can ask additional questions. Um, Uh, But then, based on that, they issue the credential. That credential is on my phone. I now disconnected from the issuer. When I go to verify, the verifier now, first off, a verifier could just be someone at a bar. I want to get into a, you know, into a sports bar, say. Uh, The verifier might just look at the credential on my phone, you know, that I showed, say, yep, that looks legit. It's got the New York seal on it. That's good enough for me. An airline or a cruise line w- might want to authenticate that that's actually a legitimate credential. Okay, so they zap it. What's, what's happening is the verifier has the de-encryption key for that QR code. It de-encrypts and asks, is this an authentic credential? And they either get a green check mark or a red X, right? That's all that's happening. So the next layer down is it's just matching keys uh, that, the itch- that the health pass holds on the phone and that the verifier knows how to read,
1: that's it. I think that's a great explanation, matching keys, right? So it's, does your key fit into my lock, so to speak, or vice versa, it does, you're good to go. Versus right. it's, as we've talked about, it's not checking some database somewhere that lives to say, Tim is Tim and Tim has gotten the credential in this date, this time. So I, 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 think, I think, and it, that's, go ahead.
2: Yeah, correct, I mean, it's not calling home, back to the database in the sky, which again leaves that breadcrumb trail. And it's not asking when was he vaccinated, what what vaccination or what test did he get, you know, et cetera, et cetera, what the dates are. All it's saying is that, is this authentic? And it says, yes, it's authentic or no, it's not. If the keys don't match, if the key doesn't go in the lock, then something's amiss.
1: And JP, jump in here because this also go, works the same way for paper. You have that QR code on that piece of paper. We talked about equity at the beginning of the segment. It works the same way it's because that's where that's the beauty of the QR code, if you will.
4: Yeah, exactly. So the one way to break this down is to think about the CDC card uh, that we've been talking about and what happens when you show up and present that to someone, right? So you know, I, I want to get my Krispy Kreme donut. I show up with my CDC card. Somebody looks at it, they make a judgment on it. I put it back in my pocket and I'm on my way. Maybe I showed them some information I, I otherwise wouldn't have, but it didn't get entered into a database anywhere. No one recorded that info. I wasn't trapped, right? But it also, as we pointed out earlier, could have been Photoshopped 20 minutes before in my apartment and printed out on, uh, on a piece of cardstock, right? So no verifiability, but also no traceability. As we talk about these uh, vaccine credentials, health passes and the like, now we've introduced a digital layer. So we have to be a little bit more careful because when you have digitized information, it does start to offer the ability for for tracking. Uh, So while it's more verifiable by scanning that QR code as Tim described, uh, we have to just take a little bit more caution about what information is contained in this uh, packet because when someone scans that QR code, as a person who's getting my piece of paper scanned, I don't know if they're recording that information. I don't know if Krispy Kreme is now creating a database of customers who have been vaccinated. Right? We 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 don't know. And so, as people who are you know generating these credentials on behalf of people, we have to take uh, we have to be cautious about what information we put in there. So we're not helping uh, others to create a giant uh, tracking database. Now, I have no reason to believe that that Krispy Kreme is doing this, but as a consumer and as a person who's visiting various establishments, I would like not to be spending my time thinking about whether or not they're going to be able to be pulling all of this information off of the piece of paper that I hold up when I walk in or my smartphone.
1: Maybe they're just creating the database of whether you like glazed donuts or Boston cream donuts or the like. I'd be okay with that personally. Let's take a quick break. and we can come back, we'll continue our conversation. You're listening to the panel discussion. Coronavirus, the need for a vaccine credential sponsored by MITRE on Federal News Network.
0: The world is full of challenges, and at MITRE, we're ready to take them head on. We're working on some of the world's most difficult problems. We're here to create a safer world. We are a world-class team of innovators, thought leaders, visionaries, and doers. We know we are called to do more, do better, think differently, and move faster. And at MITRE, we're meeting those challenges every day. We're solving problems for a safer world. Discover MITRE.org.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, Coronavirus, The Need for a Vaccine Credential, sponsored by MITRE on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Tim Pedos, the Vice President and General Manager of Government at IBM, J.P. Pollock, the Founder and Chief Architect at the Commons Project, and Dr. Jay Schnitzer, the Vice President and Chief Technology Officer and Chief Medical Officer at MITRE. Gentlemen, before break, we were talking a lot about the equity issues. We also talked, got a great discussion from Tim about how a QR code works, which was really fascinating. One thing that really pops up during our conversation is the fact that we're able to do the things we are today. We're able to talk about this idea of vaccine credentials because of a confluence of issues. And I'd like to start with the technology side of this. And maybe, Tim, maybe start us off. The fact that cloud and, and IoT and, and devices and, and, and all these things have come together at this time made this, this discussion on the vaccine credential possible. Talk to me about what the build-up to that.
2: Yeah, well, so again, I mentioned earlier on in our conversation that, you know, three to four to five years ago, if it was 2015, had COVID hit and we started talking about digital health credentials, we would have taken a completely different approach, right? Because the type of capabilities that are real now that are industrial strength and are proven, um, they've all come to age at sort of the same time, right? So when you think of blockchain as being sort of core to this, but also the the, um, importance of a hybrid cloud capability so that we can share information across an ecosystem, uh, across different uh, cloud environments, uh, things like IOT and having information out at the edge where I can actually put a credential on my phone, um, uh, the security that goes with it. Um, each one of these capabilities, IOT, hybrid cloud, artificial intelligence, blockchain, are each transformational and revolutionary in their own right, as transformational and revolutionary as like eBusiness was in you know 2000. Yet, they're all happening at exactly the same time. They're converging exactly at the same time that we need them to. And at the same time that we have this demand, which is we have a big problem where, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. We have this demand for this type of capability at the same time as convergence is happening. So it's, it's more luck than anything else, uh, but it puts us in a good spot to be able to address these issues.
4: Yeah, this is JP. I'd love to speak to that demand side of it for, for a minute. Uh, I, I've been working uh, in the space of, of personal health technology for for years. You know, sort of helping people try and get access to their health, their health information and do good things with it. And you know, we've had this promise of digital health revolution. You know, people are going to have apps and services on their phone that manage their health as effectively or more effectively uh, than their doctor could. But for a whole host of reasons, we haven't really gotten there. And one of those reasons has simply been demand and adoption on the part of the people who would use these apps and services. It's just not the sort of thing that people wake up thinking, I I wish I had all of my health information on my phone. Boy, would that save me a lot of trouble, right? But suddenly what we've seen during the pandemic are a whole host of situations where I actually really want to have my health information on my phone. And so you know, we're seeing the, the demand for people, I need to get access to my immunization record, I need to get access to recent test results, and I need to bring that down to my, my device so that I can you know, get on a flight or, or walk into, uh, into a venue. But on the other side of it, those airlines and venues and governments Uh, suddenly have a need to be able to access this information in a way that doesn't come from a centralized database, but comes from people's devices. And the confluence of of this uh, dramatic uptick in demand over the last year, along with uh, the readiness of these technologies, as Tim described, uh, has has really put us in position for uh, a pretty substantial movement forward in this in this domain.
3: And Jason, this is Jay, I would add to that, and I agree with everything that uh, Tim and JP just said, I would add to that, that COVID, the last year, year and a half, has been an enormous catalyst for all of these events. We had all this buildup of technology and capability and convergence, as Tim said, and now we've had this surge in demand where the users say, gee, not only do I, would it be useful to me, I actually need it, I must have it, it's essential for me, and I want it. Big difference from what it was two years ago, but that's also spanned other types of technologies in healthcare, such as telehealth and telemedicine, which have seen an enormous upswing in utilization over the past year. And that is likely to be sustained into the future. So at some point, we want to talk about what are the future implications for all this post-COVID, but I can tell you for some of these things, they're here to stay, and that's a good thing.
1: Jay, you bring up telehealth and telemedicine. I think let's go down that path for a second too, because that also showed a huge demand. That's been around for years. There's been examples of, of, for instance, in the Indian Health Service or the Veterans Affairs Department that have tried to kind of use more telehealth to give access to more patients. So the veteran doesn't have to drive 150 miles to the nearest you know, uh, veterans health center. Uh, all of a sudden COVID made that necessary. Not just possible, but necessary. And then all of a sudden, We used it and go, oh, that actually is not so bad. It actually is, you know, a 99% solution or 95% solution. So walk me through why that how this vaccine credential idea kind of continues to build on the comfortability that we've had with telehealth and telemedicine over the last year.
3: Well, I think uh, people are getting more and more, individuals are getting more and more comfortable with having technology as part of their healthcare and healthcare delivery and their healthcare infrastructure, whatever it is. And so, you know, it used to be that most of us wanted to go in person to see our doctor when it was time to get a checkup or a follow up visit or our next thing never thinking that maybe a phone call or a video conference like this would be uh, uh, the way to, to do it and so we just kind of always did that and always preferred it but now by the way uh, if you're calling for a follow-up visit or uh, or a quick check-in or a prescription refill it's much easier if you don't first of all you can schedule an appointment on much shorter notice secondly it doesn't take nearly as much time you don't have to find a, a sitter for the kids you don't have to get changed into fancy clothes you don't have to jump in your car and drive and then find a place to park you can just get on your computer and have a conversation next thing you know your prescriptions renewed Uh, and suddenly people are realizing there are real advantages to all of us in our everyday lives from having these capabilities and being able to use them at scale and we're going to continue to do so for many many things going forward
2: yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Now, one of the questions I get asked from government leaders is <clears throat> um, okay, we're we made all these investments in remote working capability, made all these investments in modernizing our back end to go to hybrid cloud because we need to be able to scale up and down, you know, all these types of things that we've done to build greater business resiliency and more flexibility and agility in the last year, is that is that gonna go away? And the answer is no, they may scale down, right? And we may, we may. Um, you know, scale down the operations, but we need to be ready for whatever the next big thing is, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, the next pandemic or some sort of big climactic event, uh, who knows, Godzilla, right? We need to be ready to be able to scale back up when, when the time comes. We are working, living in an increasingly interconnected and therefore fragile society. About a month ago, one cargo ship went off course by 30 yards, okay? 30 yard navigational error, got stuck in the Suez and that had global repercussions starting first in Europe with the price of commodities and oil, but then rippled into the rest of the world in a very short period of time. It's all about how do we become more resilient, flexible and agile to handle whatever the next thing is.
1: I, I love the, this conversation we got to mention Godzilla, which is awesome, right? And uh, when uh, Jay talked about, we all look forward to going to see our doctor in person uh, maybe I'm just the outlier here, but uh, <laughs> I always would prefer not to have to see the doctor ever. One, uh, this actually opens the door really nicely to a broader discussion about the vaccine credential. Is not just about the vaccine credential; it's really a, a, a the first step toward a much bigger, broader use of online, uh, digital, whatever we're going to call it, approaches to healthcare to other things. Maybe uh, um, JP lead us off with with this discussion about what does how does the this vaccine credential open the door to more to better to what are the benefits that maybe are, are coming down the road?
4: Yeah, I think that the uh, vaccine credentials and these uh, these digital health technologies are are opening the door for, uh, a, a few different kinds of opportunities. So one is just following you know, exactly the, the line of where this stuff is heading. So you know, information that's on my phone and is verifiable uh, that I can put to use in lots of other settings. So you know, we're starting with COVID vaccines and, and COVID testing, uh, but you know, we've talked about people needing to uh, be able to bring their uh, immunization records to school uh, to get into colleges. Uh, sending their entire immunization records uh, for kids to go to camps, things along those lines. That's uh, a perfectly logical and very you know, easy uh, to imagine next step uh, for for this sort of work, right? What other, what other things might I want to prove from my healthcare information uh, that now I'll be able to do so? But Jay had started touching on some of the other directions that this is going to go, uh, which are more related to you know now that people understand that they can have healthcare information on their devices that they can manage healthcare that they can manage their healthcare uh, remotely and digitally uh, what other doors is this going to open uh, in the future and many of those uh, are some of those promised digital health technologies uh, that we've talked about so you know we've seen good progress in the diabetes management space for example uh, apps on your phone that consume vast amounts of information about your diet and exercise and blood, glu- blood, blood glucose levels uh, can use predictive algorithms to help you understand you know, what you should be doing throughout the day uh, to maintain balance and in some cases, even improve your condition. And we've had a few limited examples of this, but as people start to get access to more information and start to become more comfortable with digital services, I think that we're going to see a lot of that moving forward. And one of the great benefits of this is that while today those early services may be focused on the smartphone owners and those who are you know receiving care at top flight institutions. The marginal costs of these digital services over time uh, become extremely small, and this is an effective way to roll out extremely inexpensive care uh, to the long tail of folks who over time are going to increasingly be having access to smartphones and digital technologies.
3: And to Tim's prior point, these technologies exist here today. We're not talking about having to develop them four years into the future. So the rate limiting step is not about the technology side. It's about whether or not the users are ready to use them and adopt them. And so to JP's point, that's happening more and more. So each of us are thinking more and more about what can we use this handheld device for now that we understand how powerful it has been uh, in the last 12 months with COVID and COVID has been the catalyst for all of this.
1: We talk a lot about the the silver lining in this last year and a half of the pandemic. And it was, obviously it was a tragedy for a lot of people, but I think you have to look at the future too, and look at, at that, the the benefits and, and the, the good things that have come from that sense of urgency. Tim mentioned earlier, you know, don't, don't let a good, uh, uh, emergency go to waste, so to speak desperate times call for desperate measures uh, we're just about out of time but I w- wanted to just bring uh, uh, jay back in the conversation as the resident maybe doctor on on the uh, on the panel today this is all this must be very exciting for you both from a medical perspective and a technology perspective this idea that the that the vaccine credential is, is real it can work it, it can make a difference what has to happen for 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 people to start using it, to have trust in it? Where, is, what role does maybe the government have to play? If any, where do you see, how do, how do we get from here to there, so to speak, uh, with you know people using the credential and feeling, feeling comfortable with it?
3: Well, I think it's happening already. I think people are getting more and more comfortable with the idea. I think we have to have transparency. We have to recognize the concerns and answer the questions completely and honestly and openly and transparently and, and 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 acknowledge that people have just have legitimate concerns that we have to meet them where they are that's happening we also know that there's more and more of a demand for this so that's going as that's increasing that's uh, that's going to uh, persuade people that this is important. We also know that vaccines are working. And by the way, that's my take home and take away, is please, please, please get vaccinated. We have over 50% as of today, over 50% of the American population vaccinated. That's great. It's working, all the numbers are going in the right direction. If we get to higher numbers, future state, we won't need a credential. Why? Because if we have enough of us vaccinated, we won't, nobody will need to verify or present a credential because we'll know we're all vaccinated. So future state, I hope we all get vaccinated and make at least this particular credential obsolete. But in the meantime, having it gives you a whole spectrum of choices of things you could do that you couldn't do otherwise. All
1: right, very well said. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guests. Tim Pados is the vice president and general manager of government at IBM. J.P. Pollack is the founder and chief architect of the Commons Project. And Dr. Jay Schnitzer is the vice president and chief technology officer and chief medical officer at MITRE. Tim, J.P., Dr. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: Thank you so much for having us. Thank
1: you. Thank it's you. great to be with you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to the panel discussion, Coronavirus, the Need for a Vaccine Credential, sponsored by MITRE on Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search MITRE.
0: Thank you for listening to the discussion. Coronavirus, the need for a vaccine credential sponsored by MITRE on Federal News Network.